0: Welcome to the Thinking Faith Podcast, a collection of talks and Q&A that address the big questions we're all asking about God, life and purpose. The recent Netflix TV series Squid Game has kind of taken the online streaming world by storm and broken all kinds of records. It tells a story of a dystopian and mysterious game where people who are struggling with financial, emotional and other kinds of hardship are effectively enticed into this game where a series of children's games are played to the death for an enormous cash prize. And through Squid Game, throughout the different episodes of the series, various themes come out about the big questions of life, about some of the most important things about what it means to be human whether it's in relation to trust or betrayal or pain or self-sufficiency and self actualization community, fellowship, friendship, all kinds of themes pour out. But the big underlying theme that runs through the heart of Squid Game's narrative arc is that of suffering. How do people understand suffering? How do people deal with suffering? How do people survive suffering? And the reason that Squid Game is quite telling as is the case with so much of our art, our movies, our music, our literature, is that it tells us a lot about the prevailing cultural narrative about suffering today. Now, There's plenty that could be said, but broadly speaking, there are three responses to suffering that we see in Squid Game, and they're the same three responses that we see in our world in 21st century post-industrial society. The first is avoidance. There's a human instinct, of course, and you can understand why. It's very natural to try and avoid suffering. Secondly, escape. When we are in suffering, there is a very natural tendency to want to escape, to just want to get away from it somehow. And many people in Squid Game even enter the game in order to escape the suffering in their lives. Everyone's looking for a quick escape from suffering. But when avoidance doesn't work, and escape doesn't work, and everything we have done in our own strength to try and get out of and get away from suffering doesn't work. The saddest and the third response, which we see again evidently in that TV show, is resignation. Resignation to suffering. And when I say resignation, I mean kind of a sad, lamenting despair and acceptance of suffering. These characters ultimately, almost all of them, realize that there is no way out of their suffering and they become resigned to it. They accept it, not in a a stoic or in a resilient way, but almost in kind of a, a sad, recoiling kind of way. Avoidance, escape, and ultimately resignation. That's how the world tells us to try and deal with suffering. Try to avoid it if you can, try to escape it if you can't avoid it, and ultimately you just have to resign yourself to it. Now, the sad reality of the human condition is that suffering is intrinsic to everyday life. Whoever you are, whatever you believe, you're all dealing, we are all dealing with some aspect of suffering right now. If not directly in our lives, then in the lives of those we love. Suffering is ubiquitous to the human condition. We live in a broken world and we are intrinsically, on some level, broken and imperfect too. And because of that, suffering is going to be real. Now, what does that mean for you and me? What it means is, regardless of what we believe, regardless of whether we are religious, irreligious, theistic, atheistic, what worldview we subscribe to, what philosophy and ideals and morals we live by, regardless of all of that, every single one of us has to come up with a coherent and a practically livable response to the problem of suffering. The problem of suffering is real for all of us, and therefore all of us, no matter what we believe, have to be able to make sense of it and respond to it. So this question of suffering is not just a question for the Christian, or for the Christian God, or for the Christian Bible, it's a question for everyone. But I want to share with you today just three of the aspects of the Christian response to suffering. There's plenty more that could be said, but here are three things to think about in relation to the Christian response to suffering. And they all come in response to the way this question is often articulated. If God is real, why is there suffering? I want to talk about three aspects of who God is, because the question is so often asked in relation to God. These three things. This Christian God, this God of the Bible, is a God of love, is a God who knows, and is a God who cares. A God of love, a God who knows, and a God who cares. First of all, he's a God of love. Now, we say that God loves, and that's true, and he offers us the highest benchmark for love that human history has ever um, discovered or been, had been revealed to them. But not just that, love is not just something God does or that he calls us to do or demonstrates for us. It's also an essential characteristic of the Christian God. God is love. That's a uniquely Christian sentence. God doesn't just love, He is intrinsically loving. And so love embodies and infuses everything, in some sense, everything that God does, including His very creation of the world and of you and me. So God creates primarily out of love. He wants a world, He wants a universe where love is possible. For that to happen, He had to create in such a way that love could most purely manifest itself. And how does that happen? That happens in relationship. It happens in friendship. Love is made most real and most authentically on display in friendship and relationship. Now, I know that we use the word love in equivocal ways. We say things like, I love fried chicken, and then I love my friends, or I love my husband, or I love my girlfriend or boyfriend. But we know that in its purest form, we're talking about love in the context of other people not what we eat and what video games we play and what books we read. Love in its purest form finds flight in relationship, in friendship. And so for a God who is love, wanting to build a world where love was not just possible, but possible in its purest form, he had to also make relationship possible. Now for relationship and friendship to be possible, people had to be, at least on some level, free to choose to enter into those friendships and relationships and to love in those friendships and relationships. Love on some level has to come with choice. We have to have the freedom to love, otherwise it's not truly love. Each of our friendships are worth nothing if we are forced into them, if we are blackmailed into them, if we are extorted into them. One of the reasons that relationship between people is meaningful and beautiful is because we have the choice to enter those relationships and to love within those relationships. And because of that, for love to be real, relationship has to be possible. For relationship to be authentic, freedom and choice to love in those relationships has to also be possible. And, of course, the natural outworking of the freedom to love is the freedom not to love. And so with this capacity for love that God has given us, the capacity for right, loving relationships with each other and with him, comes also the freedom not to love. And that freedom, sadly, can also be articulated with the word hate, evil, oppression, discrimination, subjugation, whatever it might be, abuse, mistreatment, misconduct. These are all human beings using their freedom to love for things other than love. And when we look at so much of the suffering in the world today, it's actually moral suffering. It's caused by people, it's caused by us using our freedom to love for things other than love. We build international systems, financial systems, economic systems, systems of people movement, legal systems, industrial systems that cause the suffering of other people, whether it's poverty or famine or inequality or climate change or even pandemic viruses. These are all brought about by us and caused to spread and expand by us. We actually have a lot to answer for when we consider the question, why is there so much suffering? but we can track it back to God's loving nature. He wants love to be possible, so he made us capable of love. By doing that, he also made us capable of not loving. In the 20th century alone, we killed more of each other than in all preceding 19 centuries put together. So much of the moral suffering and moral evil is because of us misusing the capacity for love, misusing the choice we have been given to love. So at least in part we can see that the reason for suffering, we can make sense of some of the suffering, at least philosophically and theologically, because this God of the Christian Bible, this God of the Christian Gospel, is a God of love. Secondly, He's a God who knows. Now this is important because we often come to to God with the question, if you are real God, why is there suffering? By trying to approach God on the same epistemological and intellectual level, meaning What we are assuming when we come to God with these questions is, whatever you know, God, I should know. If there's anything to know, I should know it as well. We don't understand that we don't necessarily have access to all of the information, nor do we even have the intellectual capacity to understand all of the information. But the reality is, when we step back and think about it, if God is who he says he is, and you and I are who he says we are, then necessarily there are going to be things that we can't understand and that we don't understand. My son, who's four years old right now, is not very good at multivariate calculus. It's not because he's stupid. It's partially because he just hasn't developed intellectually in that way yet to be able to understand that. He will one day, but he doesn't today. The second reason is no one's taught him. I haven't taught him. His teachers haven't taught him. They're teaching him a lot, but they haven't taught him multivariate calculus yet. In the same way, there is an epistemic gap between you and I and God. We are down here and he is up here, and the distance between us and him is infinitely greater than the distance between us and a child. And so we shouldn't be confused when there are aspects of our reality and our existence and our experience that we simply can't make sense of and understand. And in my view, suffering is the greatest example of that. There is no reasonable basis on which we should expect to understand everything there is to know about human suffering. There's a lot that we can understand and in explaining God as a God of love and identifying the moral suffering that we cause, I hope I've uncovered some of it for you, but we're kidding ourselves if we think that we can understand all of it. In fact, if we could understand everything about everything about everything, then there probably would be no God. If God is real, then necessarily there would need to be things that we don't understand. We are created by him, therefore we have lower intellectual capacities, lower cognitive capacities, and a different, lower epistemic state. We just don't have access to the information he has. If I opened a garage and said to you that there's an empty garage here, no car, just some suitcases and some tools on the side maybe, a few cobwebs, and I said to you, there is a tiger in the garage, you would assume I was crazy or drunk or deluded or didn't know what a tiger meant or I was joking. But if I said there is a spider in the garage and you saw the exact same thing, in the first instance, you couldn't see the tiger. In the second instance, you can't see the spider. In the second instance, you wouldn't be so quick to jump to the conclusion that I was crazy or joking or drunk or deluded. Why is that? Because if there was a spider in the garage, you wouldn't necessarily see it. It could be there even though you couldn't see it. It might be in a crack, it might be in the light, it might just be somewhere out of your vision. In the same way, some of the reasons for suffering are better thought about like a spider in the garage than a tiger in the garage. Just because we don't know, just because we don't understand, it doesn't mean those reasons don't exist. And that's what the philosophers call a category error. And it's a category error that we all make all too often. It comes from an intellectual arrogance of misunderstanding the epistemic gap between us and God. We assume that just because something is real that it needs to be understandable and available to me as readily digestible information. Just because something is true doesn't mean I know it. And just because I don't know something doesn't mean it's not true. There are plenty of truths out there that I don't know the answers to doesn't mean that those answers aren't out there. In the same way, there are, I know, plenty of explanations for the suffering and the reality of the brokenness of the world, because God tells us in his word that there are, but that we just don't know. We can't fathom. We haven't been told. We can't comprehend. We haven't been given access to that information yet. So God is a God of love. He's also a God who knows, and we need to just rest and trust in his understanding and in the majesty of who he is. So God does ask us. He says, I'm going to explain to you some of why there is suffering, but with some of it, it's like a spider in the garage. You just have to trust me. He calls us to trust him with the things that we don't understand in relation to evil and suffering in this world. The next question we should ask him then is, okay, God, you've asked us to trust you with the things we don't understand. That all makes perfect logical sense. It's perfectly coherent. But on what basis should we trust you? That's a good question to ask. We should always be quick when, someone, when anyone says trust me to say on what basis? Thankfully, this God doesn't call us to trust him blindly. He gives us the greatest basis for trustworthiness in human history. So we move to our third point. Having considered God as a God of love and God as a God who knows, we now look at God as a God who cares. Now, it's interesting. In Squid Game, I talked about those three instinctive responses to suffering, trying to avoid it, trying to escape it, and ultimately just resigning ourselves to it. But the funny thing is, all those three responses are not actually what people need in suffering. When we look at our lived experience, when we look at our hearts, and we look at the data sets out in our lives, what we actually need in suffering is quite simple. It's two things. First of all, we need comfort and strength in the suffering to get through it. Secondly, we need hope beyond the suffering. We need comfort and strength in it to help us to get through it, and we need hope beyond it. Now, before I get to the Christian response, I want to briefly look at how other worldviews and other categories of worldview respond to suffering, and then we can match them up and evaluate the degree to which they fulfill our need for comfort and strength and hope beyond suffering. So, Obviously, I don't have time to go into every single one in detail, but there are, broadly speaking, four other categories of worldview out there. One category of worldview when it comes to suffering says there is a God. There is a God out there. He's all-powerful, he's almighty, he's all-sovereign, but he has no moral or relational connection with you or me. And because of that, you don't get to ask him the question about suffering. If you're suffering, that's just his will, and you just have to shut up and take it. And you have to just trust him blindly, without basis. There's another category of worldview that says that all suffering is the fault of the sufferer. If you or I are suffering, it's because of something we have done, either in this life or perhaps in a previous life. It's karmic. All suffering is karmic. There's a third category of worldview that says all suffering is an illusion. The only reason that you're suffering or I'm suffering is because we have Grown desires for things, and we have deluded ourselves into this state of desire. We're too connected to the world. We're too connected to our children. So when we lose one, we suffer. We're too connected to our jobs. So when we lose our job or we fail in our jobs, we suffer. We're too connected to our friendships. So when we experience betrayal, we suffer. And so the response of this category of worldview is to meditate ourselves to a point of consciousnesslessness of the extinction of the self, some kind of nirvana where we don't even exist as a self anymore and therefore there won't be any more desire and therefore there won't be any more suffering. And then there's the fourth and final category of worldviews, of which there are several, but these are the atheistic worldviews that all postulate that there is no God. And when they are being honest, their response to suffering is that suffering is meaningless. Because everything is meaningless. As Richard Dawkins writes, we are nothing but time plus matter plus chance. And because all of life is meaningless, everything that happens in life has only synthetic and constructed meaning, including suffering. Life is meaningless, so suffering is meaningless. So once again, just shut up and take it. And it's really from that strand of thinking and that worldview that we get these three instinctive responses to suffering that drive so much of the cultural narrative today, which we see in Squid Game, that instinct to avoid suffering or to escape it or just to resign ourselves from it. Now, when we look at all four of these categories of worldviews, some of them theistic, some of them atheistic, one thing is clear to me, and I'm sure it's clear to you, they don't offer the two things that we all need. They don't offer comfort and strength within the suffering, and they certainly don't offer hope of a future beyond the suffering. So we look at all of that, and then we look in stark contrast at the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and most specifically, the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in the Christian response to suffering, we don't have a God who sits off in the distance and says, it's just his will, shut up and take it. We don't have a God who says, it's all your fault, it's all karmic. We don't have a God that says, just meditate yourself into nothingness because you need to desire less and be connected to less in this world. And we don't have a God who says, it's all meaningless. We have a God who understands the reality, the tragedy, the pain, the anguish, the despair of human suffering. He understands it so much so that he literally steps down into the world as a person. He literally steps down into our suffering in human history, Jesus Christ, and goes to a cross and takes all of the suffering, all of the brokenness, the anxiety, the guilt, the shame, the despair. He takes it all onto himself and takes the penalty for it, he dies on a cross, and then rises from the dead, defeating all of the suffering, and in doing so, affirming his divinity, affirming who he is, God himself as a person. And now, because of that, is able to offer you and me an up-close and personal relationship with him, a living relationship with him, through which we get the exact two things that all human hearts need, comfort and strength in the suffering, and an eternal hope of a future where there's no more suffering at all. The cross of Jesus Christ brings together love, justice, mercy, hope and relationship, and in doing so defeats death and suffering. It's the greatest response to human suffering in human history that we see. And it's performed and demonstrated by God himself, a God of love, a God who knows, and a God who cares.